it's the outliers that happen. Like in the case of this, like here's a kid who that's an officer. He's a leader. He's doing all these things on the side that nobody's talking about or, or nobody knew about, or some people knew about him. And then if the people that, if it's found out that instructors knew that he was cheating, then I think that's obviously a, a huge problem that I, I'm pretty sure will get resolved. Um, but if it, if it turns out that it was a kid that was self-dosing with drugs to try to make it through a program, I don't know if the program itself should be forced to change because of one guy. Greetings, everybody. Today's episode, today's episode is a, is a fun one. It's an interesting one. It is our sort of first first go at, at a little bit of investigative journalism. Alex, who are we, who are we having on today? This is a cool one. If you if you follow the stories, you might've seen some hints about what we were going to dive into. Drew will get into the specifics of the current events we're dealing with in a second, but you may have seen an article about a death in buds that occurred this past winter. I think it occurred around February and the news broke during the summer. Um, but we brought someone on uniquely qualified to talk about that particular incident. Um, we're talking to Jamie Monroe. He was a Navy SEAL from the mid-90s through the early 2000s, and he served on SEAL Team 1. After doing a bunch of cool guy stuff, he went and got an MBA from Pepperdine and started pursuing some entrepreneurial projects, including one in particular that stands out a little bit. Uh, apparently, if you can be a SEAL, you really can do anything, because one of his first business projects after that was he opened a hair salon and spa that quickly grew to be the largest in Eastern Washington. Very Navy SEAL of him, if you if you know any of the stereotypes around Navy SEALs. You, you got to have good flow, and he knows all about it. <laughs> but following that, he quickly got involved in both like the recreational and competitive sports industries. He's done quite a bit of race directing, uh, mostly in the San Diego area, and more recently, sports casting, where he even won an Emmy. Um, very one recently. an Emmy, our first award-winning Emmy award-winning guest. There you go. Um, his current roles include co-chair for USA Obstacle Racing, part-time production work for NBC Sunday Night Football, and then president of two of his own entrepreneurial projects, Easy Day Sports and Ready Fit. Um, hopefully, if everything goes well, we'll be telling you guys soon about some of the cool stuff Ready Fit is doing. Uh, and then throughout. This whole time, he's also volunteered to mentor aspiring SEALs as they prepare for BUDS. So he's still in the community and like really cares about the program and making sure it stays good and all that kind of stuff. Um, we, we brought him on because he wanted to voice kind of the perspective that he didn't think was getting covered enough in the news, share kind of a competing perspective. Yeah, so the article, the specific article that we're looking at was published by the New York Times in August, August 30th specifically. And if you Google death and Navy SEAL training, um, you'll, you'll pretty easily find it. It's behind a paywall, but there's, there's ways around that. And essentially what they looked at was one of, the, uh, one of the candidates made it through Hell Week and then passed away almost immediately after. And the investigation into that incident led to sort of a snowball effect where they discovered, um, I guess we could probably say rampant performance enhancing drug use by students engaged in the course. And so obviously there's a lot to unpack there. Um, for us kind of, there's two avenues into that. There's the, there's the tactical side of things, but then there's also the human performance side of things. And we dive into both of those with Jamie. Um, as with any, 
I think it's safe to say that as with any news article, um, they tend to be on one side of things versus another. And so like Alex mentioned, one of the reasons we wanted to have him on was to give kind of a, an alternative perspective, but what we'll say to you guys is that our, our hope is that we're able to do a little bit more digging into this and kind of bring a little bit more of this to light, both on the Navy side of things and really just kind of at large, this idea of performance enhancing drugs in the military, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Is it something that we should be regulating? Is it something that we should be avoiding? Um, I think in any performance endeavor, especially in sport, but now seemingly more so in, in tactical performance enhancing drugs are kind of a boogeyman, but I think that there's probably, well, like I said, there's probably some good and some, some bad that can go along with that. So definitely a fun episode, definitely something that's a little bit different than what we normally do, but I thought it was incredibly interesting nonetheless. Hold on. We're we're starting with this, the Emmy story. (laughs) He texts me, he goes, Oh, he has an Emmy. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> uh, just, just right place, right time, right team. That was actually part of the team, like a good, cool story. I wouldn't say my job was that complicated, but it was, you work for three weeks at the Super Bowl and you work for the right people and you, obviously I worked hard enough because there was people that I worked with that didn't get nominated, but it was, yeah. Did you go on stage? No, 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 no. So the way those things work, it's like they have all, like the main Emmys and then they have all these like technical Emmys. Mm. And then, you know, like they put in for the whole team because they're trying to say thanks to like all the people that made it happen. Those things are never like out in the open. They, there's like a press release and it lists all the side awards and who won them. So you have to kind of, it's obscure. You kind of have to find it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. But now you have it and it's, it's, is it in your office? Oh yeah, it's uh. Well, he reaches for it. <laughs> no, no. There it is. Yeah. That's right. Really yeah, I've never seen one of those. Honestly, if I were in there in real life, it might take me a second to re- like. Oh, that's an Emmy because I don't. I know what an Oscar looks like. Emmy. <laughs> I guess it's the angel holding the thing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, I'm getting way off topic, but. Is no, first- for sure. That, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of it's funny because it's what people knows, but I feel like I've done like way harder things and yeah <laughs> so i was like looking through your linkedin right before you came on just to like make sure like i knew everything because like we've only talked about like the stuff you're doing recently pretty much and i was trying to figure out your journey from like being a seal to like the sports broadcasting stuff and like the event planning stuff and all of this and did did you was your first entrepreneurial effort creating a hair salon yeah it was <laughs> It was, yep. That was unexpected for me to stumble across as I went through that. And that's why we brought him on. Yeah, no, I mean, an entrepreneur, like I, uh, yeah, I've always thought about like back then when I had all these employee problems, I was like, man, I should write a book called The Navy Seal Hair Salon. But um, it, you know, I got an MBA and we started a family and we moved to a small town where like you either worked for the government or you started a business and my wife did hair. So, so that's what I did. I had like, 30 employees at one point and and I ran that thing like you know it was a tight ship <laughs> did you were there a lot of jokes because I mean the thing with I mean no offense but the thing with seals is always the hair and and that kind of thing did that ever surface or were you far enough removed <laughs> I don't think anyone who worked for me knew that I was a seal I don't tell very many people I you got, have great I mean, hair by the way yeah <laughs> it's, I'm losing it but <laughs> 
but yeah, it's uh, yeah, I, I would guess that like probably like 90% of the stylists that work for me did not know that I was a seal because you know, I, why would they think the owner of a hair salon was a seal? I don't know. <laughs> you didn't have like a hazing process to select the stylists for your <laughs> no, the, no, but I did have the like. I have a no drama rule and professionalism and I, we did out a lot of people surprising, you know, you just say, Hey, there's going to be rules. And awesome. So. Well, we should probably start navigating this thing back towards the, the original point of this conversation. Um, I don't exactly know like what the lead in for this is, but I'll, I'll kind of open it up with what we're going to discuss is like this, the, the incident that led to kind of this conversation is absolutely tragic. Um, and like nobody disputes that, but there's a lot of complicating factors that come into it that include a conversation about fitness, a conversation about performance enhancing drugs, a conversation about like when to push through things and when to seek medical attention, a conversation about like ethics and integrity selection process for special operations. There's so many pieces of this that are relevant to conversations we have on the podcast like this. I guess I'll, I'll throw it to you, Jamie. Like, where do you want to start? What's the, like, where, what do you think people should know? Yeah. If you want to do a, like a, an intro, like, you know, you can kind of get into my background a little, if you feel like it, but just to establish some credibility, you know, pre COVID was running a mentorship program for, guys that wanted to go through SEAL training um, and it was local and it was a nonprofit. And, uh, you know, so I have a passionate passion for that. And then also like, just like, obviously, you know, like testing and deciding who's good enough has always been, that's kind of why I started ready fit or am working on starting ready fit. So it's, uh, um, so if you want to like allude to any of that, I, I won't, self-promote too much because it's not my thing but i obviously want people to think that i'm credible there's a million seals out there that have an opinion too i'm not the only one but i feel like uh the integrity side of it and and some of the things that i might have to add are things that other people haven't added or haven't really talked about so yeah yeah that was one of the things when alex and i talked about this and i'm sure i mean we'll talk about the article probably a lot but that came out relatively recently and then we sort of, we wanted to bring this to light because one, we haven't had the chance to talk to a lot of Navy folks. So thank you for that. But then two, kind of in my experience with special operations, and then even in the conventional army now, and in really all the branches, there's always this around human performance. There's always this undertone of performance enhancing drugs, whether those mm -hmm. guys, whoever those guys are, they're doing it. Those guys are doing it. You have to do it to get through this. You got to use it to get through that. And I guess the reason why we wanted to, to chat about it is because one of the things that you mentioned was that there aren't a lot of folks talking about the personal responsibility component of it as it pertains to guys going through selection courses. Everyone looks at the branches and at kind of the leadership to say, hey, what went wrong here? But like you've mentioned, there's a personal responsibility piece to that. So I guess to kick things off from my end, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that side of the argument, as it were. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I come at it from, from the point of view that um, nowadays so many people have decided that their next step in life, their next career goal, their identity is going to be wrapped around 
being a SEAL. And so many, so many people have sort of pre-told people that that's what they're doing and, and accepted accolades for their endeavors. And I think that that's, that's created a scenario where people are so tied into making it that they'll do just about anything to make it um, because they, it's kind of hard to back up out of something when you've told your friends, your family, your social network um, that you are going to this program and everyone's, you know, giving you kudos or likes or whatever. The fact remains still like 75 to 80% of them don't make it. So those people will then be forced to reconcile with all those people that they told what they were doing. And um, I think for some people, it, it causes them to, to cross that sort of integrity line, which is really kind of important to me. So one, one of the things, I, as we spoke earlier, I just don't think people are talking about his personal responsibility for this. I mean, there's so many factors in this situation that um, the media conveniently leaves out. You know, let's talk about the fact that his mom knew about it. His mom knew that he was using performance enhancing drugs. That's fine. But, you know, as a, as, as a parent myself, I know there may not be nothing that she could have done. But the fact that he purchased a used car to park off base so that he could store drugs in it knew that he already knew that if he caught, caught, got caught with drugs, he'd be out of the military. And that that part of the story gets left out all the time. And then who knows how many of his classmates we're also storing contraband in the car to use. And you know, that it's uh, it's talked about psych, the swimmer-induced pulmonary edema, which for those that aren't familiar with it, it's basically, you know, fluid in your lungs that's caused from exertion and really cold water, and, and it can lead to pneumonia. Um, so for the layman's term, it's it's basically could be pneumonia caused by fluid in your lungs. Um, and a lot of people get it because they're swimming in super cold water. So there's a lot of people trying to figure out how they're not going to get it or, you know, how they're going to make it through if they get sick. Um, but I think the mis misconception is that they're going to get dropped from the program if they get sick or injured, which just simply isn't true. And maybe, maybe there's some education that can be done on that, but, but just to start off like, you know, on the medical side of things, I think he did receive a great standard of care, probably the best standard of care. And by using performance enhancing drugs, he probably sacrificed some of his own, um, some of the care that could have been given to him because it would have been masking symptoms that he may have had if he hadn't um, shown signs of being otherwise so healthy. I think, I mean, you've, you've addressed it a little bit here, but they, they talk a lot and we're going to reference the article a lot as we go through this conversation for anybody who's like not in the weeds on this one. The article, at least for me, is the New York Times article. It it kind of made this pretty mainstream, but they they talk about like increasing medical surveillance and stuff, but they're and they they blame a lot on like a lax attitude towards medical issues there. But a, a huge piece of this is like willingness to self-identify as sick or injured. And, and we know in the military, there's a culture of pushing through things, but he, he continued to not seek treatment after he had finished hell week. Like he had every opportunity to go in for that final screening and explain his symptoms to them. But it, from my reading of the article, he did not explain those symptoms. He went into the screening, told them he was fine, walked back out of there and moved on with his life. And that to me raises questions about 
was he worried about the consequences if they started to look into like his health or whatever else was in his system at that, like when he received medical treatment? Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I thought my first read of that article, having been there and known, like it's like it paints a picture of like this sort of brutal place that like there's no rules and it's it's actually quite the opposite you know it's especially during the week that that is the culmination of sort of the the physical challenging part of it is is there there are so many eyeballs looking at it and watching it and there's so many people there that are are there to help and make sure that the uh evolution's conducted safely and 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 no one gets hurt so to me my very first impression was oh yeah he didn't say anything because if he did the first question any doctor is going to ask is, are you taking any medication? And then he would have had to lie. Um, and so that, that to me, like stood out that like the reporter just kind of conveniently didn't, you know, talked a lot about it, but then really focused on lack of medical care and has the program gotten too hard. And to me, it's like this tragedy, nobody would even know about it right now. Um, had he just sought help afterwards. And I, I, that might sound crass and people might say, oh, you weren't there. You don't know, but I was there. And, um, I, you know, I, I told you guys this story before, but back when I went through in the nineties, high prevalence of people taking Motrin as a prophylaxis, like ibuprofen, um, and not just taking like two to 400 milligrams. The military thing was like, take the 800 milligram horse pills. You can take them four times a day. Clearly, you can't take that medication in Hell Week because everything that you ingest and drink is is watched. Um, but prior to Hell Week, me and probably everyone else took four 800 milligram Motrin's a day just to to worry about inflammation, like whether you need it or not. Um, and partway through Hell Week, I was under the boat, dark, throwing my guts out and wondering what was wrong with my stomach. And I didn't say a word to anyone because I was worried that I was going to get dropped or rolled or, you know, and I didn't want to show a sign of weakness either, but after hell week, and it wasn't until the Monday after I didn't say anything after, but I, I didn't, I didn't have a reason to hide anything either. I was diagnosed with an ulcer and had to be on ulcer medication for, for a month. And that was because I was self-treating myself on something that I, that I didn't need. In this case, when you read the article, not only was this um, young man using steroids, but he was also medicating with Viagra for prevention of, of site, which is like unproven, not, not authorized for use, you know, like maybe nothing goes wrong there, but you know, that he was willing to take anything and do anything to pass the program. And I think it le maybe it doesn't leave that out, but I, I think the personal integrity issue on this is what's being missed. You, cause I have a very simple question, but I get into, I think a lot of things, one of which, you know, we talked about this prior, just the physical abilities, like what's actually required to, to pass this course. So the, the simple question is, do you think performance enhancing drugs are required for the average person to pass buds? And if not, or if so, what, like what really goes into being successful in the course? You know, that's a great question. I, I do not think so. I think you know, 95% of everyone that goes through the program goes through clean and that thought doesn't even cross their mind. Um, but there's always going to be for, for various reasons, people that have to make it through. 
when you look at um, like just the, the physical things that you have to do, the program's meant to fail at some point because you're not going to be good at everything. You know, you have you have to be a great swimmer. You have to be a great runner. You have to be good at PT. Um, there's technical skills you have to be good at. You have to be comfortable in the water. Um, there's things that are going to come up that eventually it's not going to be your strength. You know, you have, you have the obstacle course. You There's just a whole host of things that, you know, coming in, if you're the best athlete at your local high school and you're used to winning and everything, you're, you're showing up with 200 other dudes that are the same. So you, you just can't win anything. And I think that that weighs on a lot of people. But when you actually drill down to what the standards are for like, it, um, I will say an endurance athlete, because I think that's really what's kind of missed here is, you know, you have to be, you know, ideally a seven minute mile runner and not for like a marathon, but for like four or five miles. So you have to be able to run a seven minute mile for call it 30 to 40 minutes, which like you can like 40 year old women can run that fast with the right amount of training. Um, swimming, same deal. You don't have to be a collegiate swimmer or water polo player. You, you've got to be basically a sub 10 minute, 500 yard swimmer. That's really comfortable in the water. Can it like, there's going to be people that can't do that, but it's not, it's like, if you ask a swimmer, if swimming 500 yards in 10 minutes is fast when they're doing it in four and a half or five, they're going to say, that's a joke. That's like the easiest thing I've ever heard. Right. So, and you ask a marathon runner if running seven minutes a mile is fast, like they're going to say that's a joke too. So, um, and even if you look at the pull-up standards, like I was looking at the Marine Corps standards to get like a hundred points on their normal fitness test. It's like 25, like you have to do, I think eight or 10 to qualify for the program. You build up to 20. Most people can do 20, but that's over the course of five, six months. So, so do you need a cheat? No. Um, in this case, I really think that um, this gentleman wasn't a good runner, wasn't a good endurance athlete. When you think of the right candidates for this program, you think about water polo players, wrestlers, cross-country athletes, swimmers. He was a quarterback for the Yale football team. I mean, so he brings with him a lot of leadership. You know, he seems like he, sh he should be the stereotypical, like, Hollywood seal. But I, I guarantee you, if he was a 19-year-old kid that didn't have those that that resume, he probably wouldn't have been given as much of a chance as he had been to get to where he was based on some of his fitness scores prior to Hell Week. You know, like everyone's like, hey, he was a quarterback for Yale. Like, that sounds really good to us. We, we could use a guy like that, which is true. But I think there's a lot of contributing factors that the public doesn't think about when you can take a kid that ran cross country in high school that has no leadership experience and probably have a better chance of making it through buds or seal training than a football player at any high school, because they've spent the last four years of their life preparing for something they didn't know they were preparing for. Do you think while you're talking, it kind of got me thinking about a follow-on question, which has to do with what we'll call like the Hollywood seal archetype stereotype whatever you want to call it, that everybody, I mean, everybody knows it at this point. Like it's, it's probably the most well-known special operations profession that there is. Do you think that the fact that that is the case creates a certain level of risk for everyone involved in these types of programs? And what I mean by that is if you do have a division one athlete swimming, football, whatever, there's almost this preconception. And for me as an objective outsider, when I think of folks going to buds, it's always that super elite 
athlete with this massive resume of accomplishments. And I can imagine going into a program like that, knowing that I am not that type of person, I might try to reach to find some sort of supplementation to help me get to what I think is this perceived level of baseline that I need to be at to even start the program. So I guess, do you, do you think that that feeds into this mindset going into it of like, I have to do whatever it takes. And then maybe the flip side on the instructor cadre leadership side on the Navy side, do you think that there's even the possibility that, Hey, we have to uphold this kind of mythical status that buds has been elevated to by virtue of everything that we have going on in Hollywood, social media, et cetera. Does that, does that even make sense? I don't know if there was like a constructive question. in there. I, I think it's easier to answer your second part first. Cause uh-huh. I think um, once the guys at seal and, and the instructor staff, like, you know, there, there's going to be people that may not be as good or qualified to be instructors in any you, you guys see it in the army or the things you've done, like that, that what qualifies for someone is one thing, but as far as like what those instructors are trying to hold up, most of them are, they know they're basing it off of what they know. It takes the right kind of person, the right kind of teammate, what the job is. So I think they're, they're best equipped to, to make those decisions because they've all probably spent at least, you know, two deployments and, you know, five plus years as an active duty seal. So on the instructor side, I, there's there's no pressure to uphold this like Hollywood standard. If if anything, it's the other way. It's it's this pressure to like I want to select a guy that I know I needs to carry a 80 pound rucksack and and you know be a good human and a good leader and a good teammate. And if I see this guy being selfish, I don't want him on my team because I know that's going to cause me problems later. So I, I think that on the instructor side, I, there's a lot we could talk about there, but I think. For the, for generally like no instructors trying to like uphold like an external um, persona on the uh, absolutely on the on the candidate side though part of the problem over the last like call it ten years is the pipeline has gotten so long from when people can decide they want to be a seal till they actually check in and then the ways that people can communicate with each other and find out information you know when I mean, I date myself. I went through in 95. Social media wasn't a thing. The internet really wasn't even much of a thing. Email was like pretty novel. Like, <laughs> I mean, people act like we've had email forever, but I mean, it, it, the way that we communicate with people has greatly changed. And you checked into this sort of mythical, sort of scary place with no information about what's going to happen tomorrow. And the way you got information is you talked to the the injured rollbacks in, you know, this place, you know, called the pit where like on your downtime, you sort of hung out and waited to find out what was next. And you talked to the guys that were there before and they're like, Hey, what are we going to do today? What's next? And you'd kind of get all the info that you could. We're now like, I mean, people have got online manuals of like, Hey, on day one, we're going to do this. And on day two, because they've just been writing it all down and sharing it. And so you've got all this information, which the reason why I say that is like, if you had to wait two years to go and, and it's all to you, you think it's about hell week and am I good enough to make it through? You start applying a lot of internal pressure on, I wonder if I'm good enough. Am I doing enough? Do I know enough? Like you just kind of like downward spiral of like more information, more workouts, more, more, whatever, what can I do? Um, And there's tons of examples of that going on in the last, you know, 10 years of candidates some having success and some of that really having so much information, that's probably their downfall. One, one quick one. Cause I think we're going to get into like 
are the physical tests at buds representative of the physical demands of being a seal? Um, I, I did scroll through just to look at it and this is, this is not so much a fact check as making sure I'm on like the same page. Um, it, it didn't refer to him as the, the quarterback for the Yale football team. It referred to him as the captain for the Yale football team. And I know the position he played as like a state championship high school player was defensive end. So I don't, I, I couldn't really find like something certain on like what position he played for Yale football, like whether it's quarterback or whether it's defensive end, you're not necessarily talking about like an, an endurance athlete per se. Right. And that's where a lot of these issues come up is with like tolerance for volume and, and ability to sustain like a sub threshold kind of level of work for really long periods. I, I think there's a, there's a question there because everything you described and everything I've seen, I have not gone into the weeds on like what buds consist of, but it's really a ton of calisthenics, a ton of running, a ton of swimming, and just like doing physical tasks for really long periods of time. And, and I think that's something that like the culture of fitness we have today, which is going to get weird, but just like the things that are valued as fit on like Instagram or fit on football teams or like on YouTube highlight reels are all very much like speed, power, explosiveness kind of stuff. And it, it doesn't seem like that's something that's tested very heavily at something like buds. And I don't know how, like, I don't know. I'm wondering if we're testing for the right things. And I'm wondering what kinds of fitness were looked for once you made it through and you are a seal, like what did the training look like at that point And does it match? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I think they're, they're testing that testing and training the right things because it's, it's all endurance focused when they're there. But I think people showing up there have this um, perception of what they think it is, um, which is different. I mean, when I coach and mentor people on going there and like run more, get in shape, be a good runner, you'll, you'll have such an, an easier time if, if you know how to run and they're like, okay, I'm running a lot. I'm like, how many miles did you run last week? And, you know, if they really went to add it up, they're running five, maybe 10 miles a week, maybe once or twice. I'm like, I'm like, you don't have to run 40 miles a week, but you should be doing 15 to 20 four days a week. And, and I would venture to say that many candidates aren't because, the, you know, uh, they can do 100 pushups. And so they think that's going to get them by. But, you know, the problem is, is everyone can do 100 pushups. And it's really easy to point out the guy in last place on a run. If you're struggling on pushups, no one knows what rep you're on. Um, so it's, yeah, I, I, I agree with you on, on, or I wouldn't say that I would say that the perception is that the Instagram perception where, you know, you're this fitness enthusiast or uh, influencer and you've got to have the right body and you got to be the right thing. When the reality is, is you kind of have to know how to suffer a little bit. And those are the things that you, they put you through, you know, that, like log PT, like a lot of the services have adopted it, but log PT isn't really testing strength. Those logs aren't that heavy. And especially when you put six to eight guys on them, I don't, I couldn't tell you what they weigh. They might weigh 180 pounds. Maybe they're not that they're, they're light, but the, when you do like 20 overhead presses with them, by the time you get to number 20, you're, it's like that endurance lift. It's not that power lift. And they're not really testing if you have the endurance to do that. They're testing your resolve because there are going to be things that you're going to do that are going to require resolve and they want to see if you're going to quit. Um, and, and this, you know, one of the things in this story that um, is not fair um, to the program is, you know, there's this big, the, the big push is 
we, we're going to select on um, leadership, leadership, character, and competence. Those are the big things. But to get there, you first have to prove if someone has sort of the endurance and the willpower to like just do the job. And so that leading up to Hell Week and maybe a little bit after Hell Week, it's all like, let's make sure that everyone wants to be here because this job actually sucks really bad when you're packing your bag every weekend and you're freezing cold and you're sitting outside in Alaska or wherever and you got to and you got to hike 20 miles. And, and unlike SEAL training where you always have like a truck parked on the beach as an ambulance and you can raise your hand and say, hey, I'm out. Like you can't do that when you're in the middle of the desert or middle of whatever. And so those are the types of things that the program's training you for. So I think absolutely it's teaching um, people the right things. In this case, he kind of checked the box on leadership, right? If he's the captain of the Yale football team, that's like, that's a big plus, but he totally misses the boat on character. And, uh, you know, if I had anything to say, like if, if the program is fault for anything, it's they didn't identify the character issues sooner. Um, I think that they would have um, because in the phase that he was in, you know, you're getting 160 to 200 guys. You kind of weed, weed down to the guys that are capable of doing the job. And then you start judging them on character, competence, and leadership. Do you think, well, you kind of touched on this just now, but do you think the course does a good job selecting for character and competence? And if so, what do they have in place that selects for those things? Cause I know like in, in sort of Alex and I's world and the kind of big army push and really, I think probably big military push in the next couple of years, but just rolling out human performance to the masses, we'll call it. And then there's this big push to like figure out the intangibles. And I would kind of throw character into that category. And so I'm curious how this, this course, and from what you've seen, how, how does it select for that? And do you think that it does a good job? Uh, I think probably like a lot of programs in the military, that's, that's where it's lacking, you know, to be honest. I mean, what they've done some innovative things that other services haven't done. They had you like 360 degree peer evals. Um, and they, and they judge people based on what their peers say. Um, there's some pros and cons to that. Like, the, the pros are you may identify a guy like straight away that's not a good teammate based on what other people are saying. The cons are, you know, the group think and and if a lot of those guys, if there's an accepted norm that you just cheat your way through this and everyone agrees, then that's not really going to show up on that um, 360-degree peer eval. Um, also, it doesn't prevent <clears throat> clicks, you know, sort of like the cool club versus the guys that like may have different personalities. So, so, so there may be like a really qualified guy that that could eventually be a good guy that may not get selected or or be as good with his peers based on like sort of the group of peers that are there. Um, but as far as like competence and leadership, absolutely. Cause it because SEAL platoons are so small that everyone's in charge of something. So you you pretty much find out quickly if someone can hold their own and be responsible for what they need to be responsible for. I mean, when you're like even, even as a new guy, you're going to have a responsibility of something. And if you can't like police yourself and get it done, you'll, you'll be gone pretty quickly. And the other thing that's overlooked is like, when you talk about hell week, it's like really like the first within the first month and a half. And you still have another basically full year of what, what it, using the same sort of descriptive words, competence training, you know, a guy could go three or four months, and be at the range and everyone's like this guy is a, is a horrible shooter 
and he's a safety violation waiting to happen. And it doesn't matter if you made it through hell, like you're out, like you, you can't shoot and you're a danger to my teammates. You're gone. Um, and there's, there's plenty of examples of guys that are gone um, after they've made it through hell league. I guess it stings a little bit letter, less because as an individual, you can say, Hey, I have what it takes. And I just wasn't good at something. Um, Cause people don't look at like quitting or not making the physical part as, as a competence when some of it is, it is, it's just a competence. You either have it or you don't. So this, I mean, not to get long-winded with, with the answer, because I know that, I mean, Buzz, like you just mentioned, it's a lengthy process, but to me, at least, it seems that for the general public, and really, I think probably for more than that, Buds and Hell Week are synonymous, so much so that like people picture Navy SEAL training, and it's just that week on the beach, and then when you're done, you're done, and you're good to go, but kind of like what you just mentioned, it's a long kind of drawn out process. Do you think that guys suffer, the guys that get dropped after Hell Week, do you think they suffer from just over-preparing for that one snapshot and under-preparing for everything else? Because I've seen that happen where guys are monsters in the gym, but their competence as a professional is incredibly lacking because they don't focus on kind of the tactical fundamentals. Yeah, I mean, it, I think the job, the, the program does a good job of selecting candidates. So there's fewer people that fail after Hell Week. But you see like the second phase is dive phase for a reason. It's where, you know, seals come from the water, despite like what's happened the last 20 years in Afghanistan, <laughs> like, and, and they'll go back to the water and they'll still be called to do the hardest, like scariest things that people don't want to do because water's involved. And so when people say, oh, you don't need to do all that cold water swimming because it's not going to happen. Like we, we don't know that, you know? And so um, you, you see a fair amount of people like fail dive physics, which, you know, just the classroom stuff, um, pool competency, which is, you know, short for like just diving with your rigs on in the pool before they take you out to the bay. Um, everything's incremental and, and they do a really good job in the program of, of, of building you up and see, and making sure you have the tools to be successful in, you know, small bites. Um, so I would say like, Generally, people don't have to do a great job of preparing for the technical stuff, but they do have to be smart. I mean, it's it's one of the few programs where there's very specific ASVAB score requirements to get into it. So, you know, you have the military ASVAB requirements and then you have like, hey, here's the other stuff that you have to be smart enough so that when you're we're talking to you about what we need you to do next, like, you know, we know that you understand what we're talking about. Do you think. and like we've, we've touched on this a little bit and it's, it's something I want to like kind of reinforce. Cause it's something we've talked about a lot on this podcast. It's like, it comes up all the time. Um, and we've, we've seen it with other special operations organizations as they brought strength and conditioning professionals into what they do. Um, sometimes people think that like the strength and conditioning coaches are there to like fix it and everything that has happened before must be bad. And that's why we're here to change everything. And, and we see some of these programs go very much towards, making people very, very strong and like a barbell sense of the term. And they, they lose some of that emphasis on being able to endure, being able to tolerate some of the suffering of like endurance stuff. But I think they also lose some of like those traditions exist for a reason, the way they train that way, like the reason they train that way, the reason they select for those things exists based on some like pretty legitimate lessons learned about what it takes to do the job. 
how do we blend like some of the like quote unquote evidence-based or like scientific human performance stuff to introduce some of that strength and conditioning that can help reduce injuries and help people perform better while still respecting some of that. Like there, there is a reason to include the suffering component in the selection. There is a reason to include the, the cold water exposure stuff to prepare people for the actual mission set. How do we balance those two things? Uh, that's a good question. I, I would say first, cause I, you know, not being in like the mainstream military, the, the SEAL units have always had the benefit of having the best resources and biggest budgets available to them. So some of the things that they're doing on the app with athletic trainers and um, physical therapists and, and the tools that are at least when you make it through and become a SEAL are, they have the best resources available and they're, and they're training people for functions of the job. They're, you know, very similar to, um, you know, things that um, you were involved with, Alex, with the, the Army Combat Fitness Test. I mean, there's a lot of, um, here's what you need to do to be able to carry an 80-pound rucksack um, and build up to it. And they've got the best coaches and people still have to do the work. Um, as far as balancing for um, the, the suffering part of it, I, I think it is a fine balance. I think the, the fine balance, um, is the, the scope creep that, you know, you and I spoke about earlier, um, just like making sure that the training re remains the same, the same that it's been for the last 50 years. I'm making sure that those standards aren't, aren't getting harder. Um, one of the sort of buzzwords or buzz phrases the last few years is the fitter quitter. It's like there's so much information out there that people are fitter than they've ever been, but they're still quitting at the same rate. And you could say that's um, the program's too hard or or the, the program is actually testing resolve and you know people's willingness to endure the same. And it doesn't necessarily matter how fit you are, it's testing those components. I would I would say that it's the latter. Um, but I think if you're in the other camp, you would say that that means the program gets harder every time. Um, and, and that's a problem and we should evaluate and see if that's really the case. Well, that, that brings up something I was wondering as I was reading the article, it talks about how like from the eighties to today, graduation rates at buds, I think overall, I don't know if it was how specific or buds overall, but the, the graduation rate has gone down. The number of people that wash out has, has gotten bigger every class down to like, like a 10% pass rate with the class in question with this incident. I, I simply think that that those were cherry pick statistics. He was in a winter class. Winter classes have very low mm. winter heli classes. Um, people avoid them because they're colder. So there is a little bit of a higher um, dropout rate in winter classes. You could look at the fact that they're accepting more people into the pipeline to start a class that may not necessarily be qualified, you know, but if you're talking about just straight people that like the graduation rates is still like 20 to 25%, that's still the number you can look at it. Like, I, I, I think those are cherry pick statistics, like to be frank. And I think if anyone did a deep dive on what it actually is, they'd find the same, same thing. Let me ask you this. And this is mostly out of curiosity for myself, but also because I think it's relevant to Alex's question for a special operations group and i won't just cage this to seals we can kind of comment on whatever but do you think that there's kind of a um 
there's a marketing component to having a low pass rate almost like you can advertise that. And I, I say this because, you know, you read all these seal books, you read all these green Bray books, you see all this, it's like, Oh, we, you know, we only 5% make it. And I'm one of the 5% and look at my stuff that I do. Yep. Do you think that, do you have any sense, I suppose, from the inside that that is something that is encouraged or you just kind of let the chips fall where they may keep the course, the course? Yeah, I think the Navy is its own worst enemy on that one. Same with same with pilots. You know, you use, you use pilot programs and SEAL programs for recruiting. Um, Army doesn't have some of the same sort of sexy programs. So otherwise, they might not be in the recruiting crisis. I know the Navy doesn't have the same recruiting crisis, but... <laughs> I, th I think they're their own worst enemy because they kind of let it happen because they know that um, if we can get someone into the Navy first, um, you know, that's good. That's good for recruiting. Um, whether it's right or not, I think it, because there's so few spots, those spots are always going to fill up. I think the Navy takes advantage of it. I, I don't think you can necessarily blame them for that. Um, yeah, I, I don't... Uh, I think they're a victim of their own success for sure. As far as like people are always going to want to do that. And it's a, such a small program that they benefit from it. Yeah. It's, it's discussed in the article just to like lay it out for people. We, we talked about the number of people that wash out during hell week. Those people are still in the Navy, yeah. whether they come back to buds again or not, they're still in the Navy. They still have to serve a position. It's just not going to be as a seal. And it, it discusses some of that. And like, you can get a lot of dejected folks out there across the force. Um, we've actually, we see it a lot, a lot of people end up like for, through various selection pipelines in the army, somewhere along the line, they fall off. It often involves an injury of some kind. So they're like layer onto that. They're rehabbing from some kind of injury. Now they're in a job that they didn't want to be in, in an organization they didn't want to be a part of. And they like, kind of see the like goal they had fading away a little bit. And that can be a, a serious setback in terms of that person's kind of self-efficacy, hope for the future, all of those things. Well, one of the, one of the key changes, and you bring up a really good point is Navy first. So in like call it the early thousands, we were, you know, at the height of conflict and needed, needed more seals. And, um, there's a lot of science that came out, Let's let's, how, how do you become a better seal? Well, they quickly identified the obvious things like you need to be a better runner, a better swimmer, um, here's, here's the high school sports you can recruit from. So they created a program at boot camp, which was like its own division of people that wanted to be a seal. They hired coaches that would help them become better runners and swimmers before they even got to the program. Um, so they had all this information and it, it was called prep and they'd go through prep before they, they checked in. Uh, it was a great program. It definitely worked it, for the people that um, took advantage of it. But the downside is, is it created this special division where when someone came into the Navy, they were automatically special because they wanted to be a SEAL. And they were treated special from the beginning of boot camp until all the way before they got to SEAL training. And then they get SEAL training. They're like, wait a minute, I thought I was special. And this guy's telling me I'm a turd and I'm not worth, worth myself to get out of here. Like that's hard to reconcile when like your first six months in the Navy are like, Hey, you're awesome. You're special. You show up. And then they're, they're like, no, you're not. Um, so they kind of solve some of the, like the injury problems and the, like the prep physical prep problems, but then they created this own sort of character issue where people started drinking their own Kool-Aid. And so one of the latest changes that came out just in the last six months is 
they've dissolved those special divisions of bootcamp and you go in and, and you're with like gen pop, if you will, like you're a, you're a sailor first. It's a sailor first Navy. You need to know how to fight a fire on a ship. You need to know how to fold your clothes. You need to do all those things. You need to respect the chain of command so that when, you know, a senior officer is talking to you, you, you don't say, I don't care. I don't know who this guy is. I'm not going to salute him. Like you're going to have some military bearing. And in, and in the younger generation, I think that's really important. And so that's changed. And then they still have the prep program, but the prep program was moved Coronado instead of being at Great Lakes. So now you're like the lowest of the low at the to totem pole. When you get here, you're not even a student yet. And if you do the right things, we'll let you be a student. Um, so those are changes that really, when this tragedy happened, we're just starting to get rolled out. And we haven't really got, no one's really got to see if that's a positive effect, but I think that it is um, for, for a lot of reasons. Well, I'll ask you one direct question that has nothing to do with the SEAL stuff, but everything to do with the Sailor First Navy concept. We, on the Army side, we have a pretty good picture of like the foundational physical requirements of soldiering. There's a little bit of load carriage, like one of the big ones that comes up all the time is being able to drag a casualty. Like you can ballpark what that weight is based on like the average size person with body armor, whatever. And I've, I've had this conversation a couple of times with Navy people, mostly on Instagram and sometimes somewhat contentiously because I get in fights on the internet, especially <laughs> with Navy people. But what you, you pointed to able to fight a fire on a ship, that, that seems to be one of those like foundational every sailor has got to be proficient in this task. There's a huge amount of effort put into like simulating it at boot camp at Great Lakes Naval Station. What, what does that look like in terms of physical demands to like be effective on like shipboard firefighting? What are the physical competencies involved in being able to do that effectively? Uh, on the Navy side, I, I mean, I, from my point of view, I didn't think it was that hard. It was just uncomfortable, right? You're, you're putting in hot gear. It's already hot. You're carrying hoses at the time. I didn't think was that big of a deal. Um, it's it's really building the camaraderie and the teamwork and the, and the realization that we all have one job to do and this is the most important job to save everyone's lives. It's incredibly uncomfortable. I think they're, that's what they're weeding out for as far as competencies go. But it, it's I wouldn't say it's it's challenging, you know, because because firefighting is its own sort of rate in the Navy. So there's going to be guys that know how to turn the pipes on and check the pressure and do whatever it is they do. Um, but yeah, that, I think that's about what it looks like, you know, but I think just that simple exercise teaches people that they are a part of the Navy, even, even if they're like, I'm going to go on and do bigger and better things. And this is stupid. You're still exposed to that. Um, I've just been curious about it. Cause I've, I know a little bit, I know there's like a very different litter that's like specific to like folding out and being able to go up and down stairwells and stay rigid and things like that in like very confined spaces. So I've been Hard curious about like, been really curious about the physical demands of like moving a casualty around a confined space and all yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, with it, you have lots of people, like I said, it's super uncomfortable. The stairwells are small and it's awkward, but it's, it's like giving a couch to like four dudes and say, move out of this apartment down the stairs and around a corner, like Fair. you can figure it out. Like that's, but uh, I mean, that's kind of what it is. But that's why I say it kind of builds a teamwork and the understanding that you're all in the in the fight together. As I read this article and as I talk to you, there's there's two dichotomies that come to mind, and I'm interested in your thoughts on them. And one of them, I think, is actually cited directly in this, which is if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. And ultimately, what we're looking at here is is a cheating scandal in the sense that guys are using performance enhancing drugs. But I would also think that 
there's an element of that that you kind of want in a candidate, the ability to think outside the box, come up with creative solutions, et cetera. So the, the first one is, is the, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. And I'm curious as to your thoughts on that. Where does it help and where does it go wrong? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think everyone's sort of familiar with sort of group think where you start to, you would never do something as, as an individual because you clearly know it's wrong. But as soon as you kind of get acceptance from the group that what you're doing is okay, then, then it becomes an, an accepted norm. And it, and it becomes to a point where it's so bad that you still know that by yourself, you would never make that decision. But as long as you're around these people, then you'll continue to make those bad decisions. Um, so I think that's that's the biggest risk and, and the education that needs to, to happen because the idea really started with be let's be innovative. Um, when you think we're fighting wars and there's no rules, we need to teach people that there are no rules and you don't have to like, just because the manual says do it this way doesn't mean you have to do it that way if you can find a better way. And that that was sort of what the mantra was meant, meant to be. It wasn't, it, it kind of got taken out of context, which is if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying, you should cheat all the time at everything, no matter what. And, and maybe that's one thing that they could just get rid of and say, you know, like, in fact, in fact, they they have. And I think like what we need to go back to, and I, you guys probably aren't as familiar with it, or you could Google it, but the SEAL ethos talks a lot about it. And, and, and they wrote that for, to tackle some of these same um, sort of over-publicized um, issues that the SEAL community was having of like, what is, a what is a true SEAL and what is the expectation? And it really outlines like, you know, being innovative and being the best and, you know, your word is your word is your bond and, and things like that that are, are really good values that um, sometimes are missed if you like summarize that and paraphrase it into if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying because that's definitely not the seal ethos. And the set, so the second one is less obvious. It's not necessarily quoted, but as somebody who has spent a career as an embedded human performance professional, you're always pushing this message of self-identify, self-identify, like nothing bad is going to happen if you go and see the athletic trainer or the physical therapist or the strength coach, because there's that cultural shift that I think needs to take place so that people can really take advantage of the care that they have available to them on the flip side though. And you mentioned this with yourself. We saw it with the individual in the article. We see it all the time and buds guys masking injury, not reporting it, not seeking help. So I guess what I'm curious about is does a course like this select for somebody, somebody who is less inclined to raise their hand, even when there's really no risk involved, because by that point they would have gotten the trident. They would be a seal. They're working with an athletic trainer, but they're the type of individual that's less likely to identify and ask for help. And eventually I'd like to tie this to sort of the mental health discussion, because that's even more of an issue in a paradigm shift of like, Hey, if something is wrong, you really need to go and get help. Even though for the entirety of your career, it has been to your benefit to kind of mask anything and everything that's been wrong with you. Yeah, I, I, I have. A, I felt like the article was skewed on this impression that, like, if he had reported that he was sick, he would have been dropped from the program, and that's simply not true. Um, you know, to talk about Sype directly. There's been some all-star, you know, enlisted end officers that have had Sype issues in the past and have been rolled back three, four, 
five times. I mean, there's guys that for a while had the record for being the longest student because they had good character. They were passing everything, but they had some medical things that kept coming up that kept preventing them from getting the program, getting through the program. But as far as like it's self-selecting people who don't want to say, raise their hand. Absolutely. Because when you're 22 years old and someone says that um, if you get a bad flu and you miss a day or a couple of days of training, you might be rolled back to the next class and the next class classes are every two to two and a half months. That's an eternity for someone who's like, Hey, I've already sort of like budgeted in my mind that I'm going to suck it, suffer and go through this sucky program for seven months. And now I got to add two months to that. It's like, I don't think I can do that. And I think that's like, I don't know where you find the fix to that. So I think it's a personality thing, a personal thing. Like when I was young, I was like, you know, and I'm, you're, I made it, there's like this mantra first time, every time, you know, and, and there's these bragging rights. Like if you didn't get rolled back, rolled back means you started with the same, you started and finished with the same class, but you know, like it's probably only half or a little bit less than half of all students start and finish with the same class. Um, and so, you know, trying to teach someone who's young and thinking about time differently to your point, they'll still eventually be a SEAL and it's a minor setback, but a two month setback when you're at SEAL training sounds like an eternity um, when you've only been in the Navy for maybe four or five months. And you're like, I got to, I got to wait two more months. So now I'm getting frustrated as you talk about it. Cause I'm looking back at the article with what you mentioned about like winter classes versus summer classes and the winter class is a huge thing. Yeah. The author does not talk about that at all. And then talks about how like they instituted new protocols and like pass rates have gone up since but the incident happened in February and the article happened in like July. Of course, of course, pass rates have gone up. The new, the new protocols are sunshine. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's a, and there's a huge like gamesmanship on candidates trying to time, like when they're going to get selected for a class so that they don't have to be in a winter class. Um, but I, like, I still think that that, that Delta is marginal, right? Cause like if you're there for six, seven months, you're eventually part of that's going to be cold whether it's in second phase or third phase, you know, like no one wants to go through hell week when it's cold. And, and I think, you know, maybe it was in this article or somewhere I saw it suggested that like, maybe they do away with winter hell week. But the, the fact is, is like summer hell week classes just run a heck of a lot more. So if you actually look at it, there's probably a lot more injuries because they're trying to recreate something that's like sort of the endurance factor. That's a lot easier to create in the winter because you can just put someone in the water, they get cold and they're like, Oh, I don't like it the summertime with the water, which is still cold in San Diego, <laughs> but you know, they, they, you have to spend a lot more time in the water, you know, maybe they run them a little bit more, you know, they do different things that sort of try to replicate what they're trying to replicate. Yeah. So given, I mean, you, I think you've put up a very strong and admirable defensive against the article, which there are some holes. So I guess the question, and we, we've asked this to a couple different guests on a couple different occasions, but in your particular case, if you were given the keys to this whole process, having been through it, seen it evolve over the years, some of your thoughts tonight, like what would it look like? What would you do differently? What would you keep um, if you had a blank slate? I don't, I don't think, I, I don't think I would change anything um, personally. And I don't think it would be my place to change it. I think they, they found a program that works. There's, like when, when this investigation is through and, you know, maybe, maybe it won't be a, a published report or maybe it will be, I think what they're going to find is there is a little bit of scope creep. 
like there's going to be instructors that there's this joke, like when you introduce yourself at sort of like a SEAL reunion, you're like, hey, I'm uh, Jamie Monroe, class 200, last hardest class. You know, <laughs> so it's sort of, sort of like this joke, like it's it gotten easier since. But the fact is like, there's probably like, that's not true. And there's there's probably some classes that are that have been a lot harder than even the class that I went through for sure. And I'd readily admit that. But I, I think that what they'll find is trying to make sure that the standards are in place. Um, there's continuity with instructors, that the, the best qualified instructors are there and that um, it's, it's not possible for a student to get singled out by any one instructor, that there's, there's oversight. And these, the things we're talking about are maybe new to the public, but they're problems that the, the training commands dealt with you know, for 20 plus years, they are aware of them and they definitely have that oversight. And, and what we're talking about now is sort of the, uh, whatever you call it, the, the, the dot on the data chart that's way off to the side that, that, uh, it's just an outlier. Yeah, exactly. I was looking for outlier. It's the outliers that happen. Like in the case of this, like here's a kid who as an officer, he's a leader, he's doing all these things on the side that nobody's talking about or, or nobody knew about, or some people knew about him. And then if the people that, if it's found out that instructors knew that he was cheating, then I think that's obviously a, a huge problem that I, I'm pretty sure will get resolved. Um, but if it, if it turns out that it was a kid that was self-dosing with drugs to try to make it through a program, I don't know if the program itself should be forced to change because of one guy. So the, the other thing too, the article like talks a lot to the 80% who didn't make it, unnamed student who, like, I wonder if any of those unnamed students that came forward about instructors were students that had graduated and passed. And maybe some of them were, but uh, like, I'm taking the bias that pretty sure if you ask all of the graduates of that class, if they were glad they went through and everything that they did, they, they thought that was meaningful. I think that they would say, yes, it's the times that the guy's got his chip on his shoulder. And it's like, if it was only that one instructor or that one thing, and it was so unfair because I, I missed my runtime by two seconds and they dropped me from the program. Like I've heard it all from people. They all have their excuse at the end of the day. Like their excuse probably is they either weren't qualified or they didn't, they didn't prepare or they had like, you know, a competence issue where they, they just couldn't do what they were asked to do. I think this is really interesting because we just, we recorded another conversation recently about like cognitive biases, cognitive fallacies kind of stuff. And we talked a little bit about survivorship bias and there's a, like an inverse survivorship bias here of if you, if you only address it with people who did not make it, you're going to get one picture and you, you don't really have access to the, talk to the population that did make it. So you're inherently going to talk to people who did not. Yeah. I mean, in this, this whole article, you, like the, the military's comment is no comment. The only reason why you guys can talk to me is because I'm not in the military and there's no like recourse, right? I mean, sure, some of what I'm saying might be speculation. I think it's 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 least a knowledgeable opinion of someone who's gone through it. But you know, like that, if I can say anything, I hope I'm defending the program as best I can because I I think that like when you're only talking about um, the negatives and not all the all the goods things that have come out of the the program in the last um, 20 years, I mean it can't like expect like you had all these people that were ready to kill Osama bin Laden on the spot and actually do it. And then say like the program's too hard. Like, like 
people forget like one of those helicopters crashed on that mission and they dealt with that issue and still went through with the mission. Like there's a lot of things that, you know, maybe a conventional um, unit would have just said, Hey, we're going to, we're going to cancel this. We're out like abort. And in this case, like, you know, a lot of things happen that were part of the training um, that not, you know, not all units are tasked with. And I think a, a takeaway here is like, no one's arguing that this is not tragic and it should not be investigated and addressed and like look into the potential drug problem and how widespread it is and all of those things. But I think this is just a, a chance to talk about kind of the other side, like the media will always choose the narrative that invokes the most fear or anger or whatever it is. Cause that'll get the most clicks and then I'll get people riled up. And I think there there's an important piece of it here that, there are protocols in place. This is a professionally run program. There is a reason that they put people through this kind of stuff. And, and it is overseen by like competent medical professionals and all those things. So I think that's kind of the overall message here is, are there issues? Are there risks? Are there concerns? Totally. Are, are lots of good things in place with people with the best intentions overseeing it in, in a professional manner? Also, yes. Yeah, I, th I think the whole side of the article that that and I've read through all the New York Times comments and everyone's like charge the Navy with manslaughter, standard of care, no medical attention. I, I, I you guys know I'm in the event business. I'm going to go to Ironman, the world championships in Kona and spend 10 days working on the event on various capacities. And they have the one of the best medical staffs in the world running that race. It's also one of the most extreme. But the reason why they do is any doctor or emergency physician or whatever would want to be at that race to be a part of it, to get that exposure. Hell week and SEAL training is no different. Best doctors, best nurse practitioners, best independent duty corpsmen, like every everyone that should be there gets the right to be there. And to, to say that it's somehow the, the Navy's fault for not watching out for this guy you know, I, I don't know how that same doctor that was asking them that question knows to say, hey, man, did you buy a used car and store drugs in it? And have you been using them for the last two months? Like they're, they're that's not their job. And the whole drug <laughs> testing issue, too, is a bigger problem, right? Because you guys being in the military is it's a random drug test. Like drug testing is a is a service function. It's not a SEAL program function. But the article is written as if these guys are pro athletes going to race a tour to France or on a football team. And they're like, Oh yeah, there's just this like, you know, USADA doping program in place that we're just testing these people. No, they're still sailors. They're still getting, they're only getting tested if there's a suspicion of getting testing tested. And most of the time they're getting tested for, you know, illicit drugs, not steroids. So that's something that they could probably change and they probably are looking into changing it, but but like, you know, imagine running a school and then creating this problem and, and then going to the Navy and saying, hey, we want to do like, you know, USADA, WADA drug testing for our lead athletes. They'd be like, you know, go pack sand. Our budget's for like, you know, the safety of people, not so that you guys can feel better about your, you know, quote unquote, Olympic athletes. Yeah, no, it's and I'm glad like that. Again, that's the reason we wanted to have you on to provide that slightly different opinion than what you see if you just click on the headline on new york times which I, I forget the exact headline but it was like seal student die like it's the death everything is just dying um mm -hmm. and it's it's good to i think get a different story a different side of things because 
it's a conversation. I think there's people on both sides of the fence could probably change things, could probably fix things. Um, but yeah, I mean, your insight is super appreciated. And I know we've kept you long. You told your wife before we hopped on that you had like 45 minutes to an hour, but um, I don't want you to get in trouble. So very much, Jamie, thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on and talking about this. I know it's something that's close to you. So we appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Drew. Appreciate it. We'll make sure you get your second Emmy off the back of this podcast. So, <laughs> <laughs> I guess, Aaron, I didn't know that. So. Yeah. <laughs>